Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. And when they arrive, they say they can't interfere with domestic affairs between a man and his wife. And as they walk out the door, the tears well up in her eyes. Last night I heard the screaming, then a silence that chilled my soul. Prayed that I was dreaming when I saw the ambulance in the road. And the policeman said, I'm here to keep the peace. Will the crowd disperse? I think we all could use some sleep. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. You are listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, broadcasting from Cortez Island, B.C. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, what's current on Cortez and beyond. Please be aware that the views and opinions heard on this show are not necessarily those of Cortez Community Radio Society, its board, its staff, or its membership. founder of the first Cortez Island Women's Center. It's a chapter of the North Island Transition Society. And I'm wondering, Tanya, if you can tell me a little bit about yourself. How long have you lived on Cortez? And how did you get involved with North Island Transition? Um, I've been living on Cortez for almost 14 years. And I was living in Vancouver for uh, my, all my adult years before that. And when I first got up to Cortez, I was really kind of taken back by what people knew of domestic violence or knew of friends that were in uh, violent situations and things like that. I really felt like we were about 20 years behind the times on when it came to domestic violence on Cortez. And then, you know, taking another 10 years forward, I really felt like now we were 30 years behind. I really hadn't seen much growth or change in the community perspective or in safety for women during that time. And you felt like other communities were doing better than we were. I don't know that I know that other small communities are doing better. I think that the challenges that we face are quite typical to remote and small communities. I don't think that Cortez is an exception. And maybe that's the bigger point, is Cortez isn't an exception Mm -hmm. from the things that do go on in communities. 
all sizes of communities all around the world, this is an issue. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have our part in it as well. And so what drew you to North Island Transition? At the time, they were the Campbell River Transition Society. And when I first came up here, I just kind of got in touch with them and asked them if they kind of knew what was going on out here or what their involvement was. And they had some things that, uh, resources, and they had some workshops happening at the time. I think it was about poverty, women in poverty, actually. And so I got some of their information, and I had a table at the market and had that information out. And even at that, I was quite surprised by the reaction of people, for one, realizing that they could access the transition society in town because it was Campbell River. We felt removed from that. And so it wasn't common knowledge that you could access them for help. So many people felt there was no resource. At that point, I didn't see any. Um, So that was probably the very beginning. And then through more conversations with them and with... You know, they were aware of concerns on Cortez Island in isolation. Some uh, community meetings started happening, and uh, from there we started getting outreach workers that were coming over every two weeks to do counseling with women one-on-one, free confidential counseling. And so it just kind of built up bit by bit, and I guess eventually this becomes, the Cortez Women's Resource Center becomes a spot that we can collect more information, get a better understanding of what's going on, and we have allies through them to try and strengthen that part of our community. So essentially, um, I did describe it fairly accurately as a, a sort of a chapter house of North Island transition. And is that how it's funded? All of our funding, we raise ourselves. They don't actually supply us with any funds. Um, so donations are pretty much what are keeping us going for the most part. Uh, We're starting to apply for more grants and trying to find more avenues that we can try and get things covered. But it's not easy to find uh, grant money out there that will cover costs and things like that. You know, there's some more things that we can try and access for workshops. And now that we've been around a bit a year, you know, it allows us to kind of even be accessible to more of those things. Mm -hmm. But you still have operating expenses, and I know that's very difficult to cover from grant money. It gets challenging. Yeah, we're uh, we're running out pretty soon again. Getting into the uh, the issue itself on Cortez, you've been here 14 years. About how many live situations would you say that you've been aware of per year on the island? Like how many uh, situations of domestic violence, of women not being safe in their homes? I would say on average... About three, two to three a year where there's actually been violence, where there's been physical violence. and um, Actual legally defined assault mm-hmm. or yes. battery. Yes. And this is two to three years that are different, That's not right. the same household year after year. That's correct. So over 14 years, that adds up quite a bit. I will say that some of those numbers are the same abusers, different women. We have seen some of that. The women are the ones who leave the island. I don't know of a situation where the woman has felt safe enough to stay on Cortez and that's been the abuser who's left. So you've seen a number of situations of what you call serial dysfunction. Yes, yeah, for sure. So that implies that we're not really very good at dealing with it. What do you think are some of the reasons that it's hard to get traction, hard to get some resolution? There's so many different ways that that that's an issue uh, one of the ways that comes to mind it's our comfortability has a big part of it right um, because we all know each other 
we all know certain sides of each other. We know our social community side, our happy side, and everyone, absolutely everyone has that person who they are at home, you know, who they are in their darker hours and this type of thing. Most of the community is not going to be privy to our darker sides. It can be hard, coming back to the hard to believe thing, right? Because you might know one side of a person. It can be very hard to see or know another side or to picture that to be the truth. The other thing is, is that oftentimes you hear excuses brushed off for women who are asking for help. It can be that they're, you know, they're crazy, they're depressed, they've been, you know, there's usually some sort of emotional excuse for why they kind of deserved the treatment that they received. If we, it gives us a social responsibility when we're believing the woman to actually get involved somehow. It becomes easier to discredit the woman because then, you know, it's, oh, that's their issue. It's, you know, whatever's going on over there. She has problems, blah, blah, blah. But we don't think about the part where if we were to believe her, then we have a bit of a social responsibility to help her or to possibly engage or confront with the abuser. That person who might be a friend, who might be a drinking buddy, who might be somebody you've known for 20 years, who might be somebody whose services you need on the island that you can't get other places. All these things play into a factor. Social comfortability, seeing this person out and about again, all of these kind of things can play a part in not actually wanting to believe the, that the abuse is happening. If you do, it puts you in much more uncomfortable position. It's disruptive to the, the calm surface of the social life. It stirs things up. And not to mention that, honestly, people just really don't know how to navigate that. They truly have no idea how to navigate it. It's not consciously brushing it off, but it becomes psychologically easier for us to process that that's going on within our community or to somebody that we know. And, of course, to take it seriously involves getting as people say, uh, domestic violence situations are always described as, well, it's tricky. Well, it's complicated. It's messy. What isn't? <laughs> and, and what isn't? But I mean, it is more complicated than someone having a car crash or a bike Absolutely. accident, and there's sympathy and there's the support that just uh, comes very spontaneously out of the community. But when it comes to domestic violence, I think in communities, people... They're reluctant to take sides. It's seen as taking sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, that must complicate things quite a bit. For sure. For sure it does. We're a very, very supportive community when it comes to tragic events, Uh, when it comes to supporting new families with new babies, right? When uh, somebody's sick. We're a very supportive community. We can come together on those things. When it comes to opinionated topics... We're a very different community. We're almost unrecognizable. I think people fall into the trap where they feel if they're going to support a woman who's being abused, then they're sort of morally obliged to demonize her partner, the person who's perpetrating the violence, and not realize that that person is also in trouble and needs support in order to change. Yeah, and that is, I think, one of our biggest challenges. Is like It's, it's looked at very black and white in that sense, right? And... I very strongly believe that abusive behavior can be linked to addictive behavior, which I really strongly believe leads back to trauma, unresolved trauma. Uh, I don't generally believe that people are just bad people and do mean things. I believe that they're, especially when we're talking on an abuse scale, I do believe that if you follow that line back, that 
and this is one of our biggest challenges. And so to look at the person, like this is a person who's in trouble. If they're presenting behaviors like this, they're in trouble. And they do need help and they do need support. And oftentimes just removing the woman from that situation, even if that successfully happens, that doesn't provide him any difference in behavior. That doesn't provide him any support. That provides him with looking for the very next person to fill that role so that they can get out that energy release from whatever unresolved things it is that they need to face to be healthy. You know, I really believe that until men are receiving help and are healing and are healthy, that women won't be safe. Since we can't do any news story these days without talking about the pandemic, how the the pandemic and the lockdown policy are affecting women, because I know domestic abuse statistics are up in all the countries absolutely. that are imposing lockdown. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. That and suicide rates, right? Mental health issues are so, in all areas, this uh, social isolation stuff is getting really, really challenging. People aren't working. People are together a lot more of the time. There's more financial stresses now. There's uncertainty. Everybody's scared. And that is that you see that response coming out a lot in the community, you know? So yeah, it's absolutely a concern. It's a significant concern right now. Children aren't at school. Uh, oftentimes, school can be a safe place for children. It can be a place to get away from the tensions of home. We're not supposed to be going outside. The playgrounds are shut down. Moms can't get together even under the guise of a play date for the children without there being some kind of like kind of social repercussion for that even right now, right? People are pretty guarded about people being out and uh, spending time together and those kind of things. And since people are feeling a little nervous about strangers, it's probably harder to find shelter accommodation Absolutely. Temporary shelter. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, a lot of the places aren't, you know, right now people aren't really having people come in, whether they're long-term or short-term housing. So it basically just adds another challenge to all the ones we already faced as a small rural community. Well, and not to mention that even trying to ask for help or access help becomes more difficult, right? It's harder to have a private phone conversation now. There's not times that you know that person's going to be out of the house or those types of things become significant too. So I would ask, um, is one of the challenges the very rural nature of the area itself, like that there are no neighbors overhearing what happens in a lot of homes? Plus, we've got the whole, actually, isolation of an island. Um, if we were just in a remote area, uh, a couple-hour drive away, an hour drive away from somewhere else, we could still drive away and then the next day drive further. It's practically impossible to leave Cortez Island without somebody noticing on the ferry or something like that unless you're actually getting off by boat. So that's tricky. Um, you can't just leave in the middle of the night. There's often nowhere to go in the middle of the night even as far as just going for a drive around to go somewhere that's lit or that type of thing. Yeah, it's not like you can go to the 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a small island. Police aren't here. Restraining orders can be hard to uphold. and I was going to mention that, that um, one of the challenges for really remote rural communities like us is there is actually no timely police response. Is that something that North Island Transition or you or other people have been thinking about, whether there's any way for us to have an immediate response of some kind on the island? I... And the police are going to be here tomorrow afternoon. Or at least a couple of hours, generally, right? And oftentimes, by the time the police do arrive, the situation's been de-escalated. 
a more urban area might be a neighbor who phones the police, and that's also different than if a phone call seems to come within the house. Uh, often if a phone call has been come within the house, the other person knows that the phone call has been made, so they defuse. Um, and so by the time the police show up, it seems like a he said, she said thing. She, you know, doesn't necessarily want to go through the process that is going to have to happen. Uh, the, all the more reason for needing to have an actual community response. Us as a community of Cortez need to navigate that and not actually expect it to be on the RCMP or... And this is where we have, where it's also tricky because we need to talk about like what if we are putting ourselves into dangerous situations, how do we navigate that, not going into situations alone, having a backup team, um, even being able to have people who are present, even if they don't want to go into the house, who are witnessing and hearing what's going on so that there is actually a witness. There's all sorts of little ways, but it is... It can be dangerous and it can be scary. And what I got out of this meeting that we had, we had an RCMP member from Quadra. Rachel Blaney was there, uh, along with, I think there was about four or five of us having the conversation. And what Rachel Blaney and RCMP told us when we were talking about needing a quicker, more more of a need for, one of the ideas was maybe there was more of a need for RCMP on Cortez. It was made pretty clear to us that RCMP services are going to be getting cut back. There is a possibility that there will be less RCMP presence in the more remote surrounding communities. And so that more responsibility will be going on to Campbell River RCMP to respond. Which is even further away. And there is definitely in that conversation was the idea that the best thing and the safest thing for Cortez to do would be to try and come up with a community support plan when it comes to domestic violence. So I just thought, um, for the listening audience, uh, we might want to go through some of the classic questions that come up around support for women experiencing domestic violence. And uh, the obvious one, the one that you hear over and over again, is if the, the relationship is violent and the woman is in danger, why doesn't she just leave? Why does she stay in that situation? Housing is often a major issue. Uh, finances, often women are financially controlled who are in abusive situations. Uh, if there's children involved, women leaving an abusive partner means that they're going to have to share custody with that abusive partner because abuse towards women seems to, abuse to the mothers seems to show very little reference into what custody the fathers still have access to. So you're saying that in the court system, after separation or divorce, violent behavior towards the mother is not taken into consideration when custody is decided? I don't want to say not taken into consideration, and I think often, you know, like, it depends on who who your judge is and, like, those types of things, too. And um, But I have not seen women being put into dangerous or being hurt to be that much of a factor in the father's accessibility. If there's been abuse directly to the children, that is different. But uh, children being privy or witnessing domestic abuse does not seem, in my opinion, to be taken seriously that that is actually an abuse to children. That them witnessing that sort of behavior and violence against their mother, that that doesn't have long-term impacting detrimental traumatic effects. In my opinion, that part isn't getting weighed heavy enough. Um, children are often used as a pawn. If the mother is going to leave, uh, there could be threats about the kids, what they'll say to the kids to try and manipulate the children to think that she doesn't love them or there's that kind of stuff. And also that when that is the case, 
women will often continue to put themselves in a dangerous position than to leave their children alone to fend for themselves in a position that they think is going to be dangerous. And taking the children with them makes it even more challenging to exit? Fathers still have right to access to their children. So really, for a woman to up and just, without, especially without police involvement, um, a lot of women choose not to involve police. And so if it's a situation where police are involved, women can easily get to safety. There's safe houses and these types of things where women can go. And that happens for the first few days in the first week, right? But then that's not the end of the story. Right. And that's another part of it is that women tend to be in more danger. The numbers of women that are murdered by their partners are higher after they've left the relationship than actually being murdered within the relationship. So women leaving abusive relationships doesn't necessarily make them safer. Um, work is a major crisis here, right? And then there's also the part that it's not easy for a woman with children to leave Cortez Island if the father is here because of the whole accessibility. But we're talking about a place that has no housing. I'm going to say no housing because that's practically the truth. It is extremely challenging. We have women looking for housing for years before they can find it and they're still in abusive relationships. We have the economic struggle of work on Cortez Island. And those two things into themselves. So if you can't leave Cortez Island. Because you can't handle the logistics of um, shared custody. Well, it's tricky because also um, men, you can't just up and leave and go wherever you want, right? It has to be within accessibility for the fathers to see their kids. And some might argue that a ferry ride doesn't make that accessible. Especially if what is a large part of the relationship is control. And so there are lots and lots of what you might call perverse incentives, um, as well as that emotional roller coaster, assisting in motivating women to stay Mm -hmm. and just to keep somehow coping with it. And one of the ones that I certainly have heard is... um, Why do you call this a women's issue? Women can be violent too. Women can hit people too. Da-da-da-da. And I'm just going to let you run with that for now. Uh, Going back to what I said, that I believe that trauma is the basis of a lot of abusive behavior. And I believe that that happens for men and women. I believe that most people, especially under the right circumstances, have the ability to be violent and that it can be the coping mechanisms and the tools that allow you to change your behavior so that that's not your automatic response. Certainly women can be abusive. And there's all sorts of kinds of abuse other than physical abuse as well, right? So there's, there's all sorts of ways that people can be abusive to each other. When it comes to violence against women, we don't see the numbers of women killing their partners that we see of men killing their female partners. And that is kind of the bottom line for me, um, is that women are dying because of this and men aren't as often dying because of this. So if you want to go to the extreme measures with these types of things and also how we respond to these, there is a part of us that we kind of condone women being treated to a certain extent this way. Um, when a man kills his partner, it might be a little blip that shows up in the local paper, probably doesn't make the 
big news, that kind of thing. Um, you hear about domestic violence or murders of women and you'll get a tally at the end of the year, like this kind of stuff, right? If a woman kills her husband, that will be all over the national news. She will become a household name. And at the center, um, what services are you offering? Well, right now, with the way everything's going with COVID, well, uh, let, let's talk limited, about but in general, normal times. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, our volunteer base has a lot to do with what we have to offer. We've had women provide uh, writing circles. We've had meditation circles. As far as having like regular things, uh, we had a like a garden and seed swap. We were having a Thursday watercolors, so if you wanted to just come in and do some painting and hang out and be social, there's always tea and coffee. We've got some basic food that's available. There's also a membership base, and so members are able to access the center whenever they want to. It doesn't have to be during open hours. We have free internet. We have free long distance to like 60 countries in the world. Uh, there's a great printer there. Uh, there's privacy. They have the ability to put up a sign asking that nobody come into the space if they need to make some private calls or do something like that. I think there it's worth mentioning that um, some abusive partners do restrict their partner's access to things Absolutely. like the car, the phone, the internet. Absolutely. And so having those resources to offer can be very supportive. Absolutely. The space has also been used for one-on-one counseling at times, and we can block the time and space up for that. There's been art classes for kids out of there. So it's really, a, as a resource center, we're not a crisis center. We can help connect women with other resources that they need. We can be that, that bridge. Um, largely, it's about women and giving us a place to resource and confront poverty, to have education. Not everywhere you can have internet access here, right? Not everywhere cell phones work, all these kind of things. Uh, that's something that makes it a bit unique on Cortez, right? And similar to other remote communities is the access to internet and phone and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a space that can get used however women really want to use it for themselves. But at the same time, it's sort of a conduit or gateway to the services that North Island provides. Well, and it also, what, what is largely happening that... I feel really good about is how much women are actually connecting and we're having the conversations about what this community needs. We're having conversations about what we want. Our volunteers want more training. That's something we're trying to find money for. Every, all of our volunteers are definitely interested in more training. So you end up having a community group and space of people who are actively trying to deal with these challenges in our community. Um, so that has been one of the things that's been the most fulfilling for me personally in having that space is having that connection with other women, having that camaraderie. That unto itself bringing us together like that, I believe makes us stronger. People who are trying to help other women, we are also a place where you can come and we can navigate that and how to be a better support and what kind of tools we can provide. And I think um, perhaps most importantly, it sends a sort of message to any woman who is in distress or not safe in her home that she's not alone. Mm -hmm. That it recognizes that, yes, this is real and other people are experiencing it and you're not on your own. And there's a place that you can go safely that people already know that. Right. You know that if you walk through that door, you're going to be believed. You're going to be supported. You're going to be listened to. It, any questions that you have regarding volunteering, donating, um, looking for support for yourself and supporting somebody else, 
anything like that, uh, a question about any kind of resources, we can help direct all that kind of stuff. And you have literature, stuff you can print out, stuff people can take. We have home stuff with we can them. print out. Absolutely, yeah. We've got st- we've got a, you know things in our file folder that's right there, and we've got uh, things that are printed out and put it up, put up on our poster board type of thing. Mm-hmm. So there, that stuff tends to constantly be up. So it's just always there. Um, we can always print out more stuff. We can send resources. We can email the resources. And as we do more workshops and those kind of things, um, then we can also, we take information from those workshops and they become part of our resources in-house as well. You mentioned the crisis line. Do you have that number with you? Yeah, the 24-hour crisis line number is 250-286-3666. They also have a 1-800 number, and that's six six seven two one eight eight. If community members are concerned, what can they do? What are some of the best ways of being supportive? One of the first things that you can do is try and set up a time to talk with a person that will be private, you know, invite them for a walk in the woods or going down to the beach, that type of a thing, or into your home, whatever, but somewhere that you know that you could feel like you could have a candid conversation with them. Um, let them know that you're worried about their safety. And if there is something that you felt wasn't right, uh, let her know that you're there to help. And by letting them know that they, that you've seen something that's made you concerned about them, will let them know that there is somebody to talk to about it. It's much easier to talk to somebody after they were like, Oh, I noticed this the other day, or are you doing okay? You seem out of sorts lately, or can I make you a cup of tea? Like this kind of thing becomes far easier than to actually reach out for help on your own. You've been given a lifeline, you've been given a resource. It's extremely scary to ask for help because if you don't get that help, it's that much harder to ask the next time or it makes you feel like you're not deserving of it. Self-esteem issues are already really low. So it's really challenging for people to reach out and ask for help when they need it. All people, not just women men who are dealing with abusive behaviors and their own cycles. Um, that's the truth, too. It's much harder to walk up to someone and say, I'm in trouble, than to have them ask you, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, with legitimate concern and care, right? Mm-hmm. And that's another part when we talk about supporting men who have abusive behaviors, is it's going to be far easier to open up a dialogue or a conversation about their frustrations if you open up the conversation. And it doesn't have to be, it can be as simple as, have you been doing, or life's been really frustrating lately, or start off with your own complaint about whatever, you know, like create a space where that person feels like they're in a place that they could talk to you and open up and explore what other things might be going on. And so if you were concerned, say, about a woman that you know, you might want to have a conversation in which you casually mention your own relationship frustrations or that would give her that space. I think a lot of people who are in trouble of one kind or another have the illusion that other people's lives are super perfect and that they're the only one that's struggling. And that makes it that much harder. Part of being supportive, too, is letting her know that she isn't alone and letting her know that there is people out there to help. Uh, again, you can reach out to the Women's Center. A man or a woman can phone the re- Women's Center or send us an email if they were looking for support. The space is held as women's only space, but that isn't to say that we can't give help or resources out to men who are concerned in the community. And we do have a small group of allies who have connected with us about issues and things like that, too. Uh, if you can offer specific help, uh, like child care, helping with transportation, uh, getting them a ride somewhere, if you have a phone that they can use, things like that. 
uh, can be helpful. Actually having something specific fit to offer. One of the other uh, big ones is not to place uh, shame or blame or guilt. Listening is the biggest part of it. Your opinions, other than the importance for their safety, are not important. Whether or not you think the story sounds a little bit shady is not important. Uh, we're talking about a whole relationship of aspects and elements. So one story or one incident is still going to involve an entire background of two different people and then their relationship. So it's not important for the person who's listening to understand. The process that's important during that is that the person's being able to speak and to be heard. Well, and the bottom line for me has always been it doesn't really matter what led up to it. It's still not okay to hit someone. Even if, even if that person was being very annoying, even if that person has a history of being very annoying, even if the whole situation is tremendously fraught, it's still not okay to hit someone. Mm -hmm. That's just, to me, that's the bedrock. Well, there needs to be a bottom line, because the thing that happens is once that gets crossed once, it becomes easier for it to get crossed again. Right? And, and it becomes less of an ordeal every time. It's like, oh, that became, oh, that was an, inc an unfortunate incident. That's one of my favorite ones, right? Um, so. Well, I think we're starting to drift into a fairly important topic, which is about the cyclical nature of violence in relationships and how frustrating that can be for the people trying to help, as well as, of course, being quite dangerous for the person trapped in it. That people will often be very frustrated when they've heard about an incident and then things calm down again and the abusive person apologizes and the woman that you were so worried about is reconciled and then it happens again. And it's hard for people not to take that personally when they see that happen. And it's really important not to. Um, it's very common that women will go back a number of times to an unhealthy relationship for a lot of those things that we talked about before um, but also because when there's trauma or abuse going on in a relationship there becomes this cycle this emotional and this like physiological cycle where your body goes into this low after the trauma or the abuse and then for there there usually is the honeymoon period afterwards um, there's usually apologies or gifts or promises that'll never happen again. Lots of, I've never loved anybody like I love you. Nobody's ever loved me like you love me. Lots of this kind of really desperate feelings. And physiologically, getting that boost, it's like a serotonin boost that where you like, you, it makes you feel better, right? It fills up. So it kind of becomes this constant emptying the the glass and then overfilling it and then just mm -hmm. dumping it right out and then overfilling it and it becomes there's no there's very little medium there along the way and our, we get trapped into that like it's a very hard psychological thing to get yourself out of you can almost look at it like you could almost compare it to like an addiction like where the body responds in a way that is beyond your rational thought not to mention that when people are going through traumatizing situations, parts of our brains close down. We aren't able to process the trauma or the extent of the trauma that we're in until we're in a safe place to reflect on it. So oftentimes it becomes very easy to downplay the trauma or to think, 
I'm tough, I can handle this, or it's been worse than this before. It becomes very typical for that to, to go on in the brain, which makes it even more challenging. Which makes it harder to step back and say, this is not a healthy relationship. Yeah. I guess the roller coaster makes it that much harder even to do the kind of thinking or reflecting. That it takes to make a plan to leave, to organize new housing, to figure out your finances. It can, you know. So, yeah, so the cycle of violence, uh, there's usually tension, walking on eggshells, threats and intimidation, uh, fear and guilt, unpredictable behavior, uh, which tends to lead to the violence. When the abuse actually occurs, there's violent behaviors, emotional, physical, financial, and or sexual abuse happen during those violent times. And then there's the honeymoon period uh, where the abuser apologizes, try and make up for their abusive actions. They may blame the abusive behaviors on the victim um, or they might ignore or deny the abuse and just all of a sudden are like showing up with flowers and made a great dinner and just not even going there. And then from the honeymoon period, generally the tension starts to fit back in and then leads up to the, the violence and then and it, and it just goes around in that cycle generally. So in your, in your experience, and you've focused on this pretty closely, to what extent do you think substance abuse plays a role in domestic violence? Well, generally, but specifically on the island, like alcoholism, like drug issues. I would say the majority of times it's a factor. The majority of times? Yep. Um, but again, I also believe that substance abuse and addiction is, again, directly related to trauma and inability to, to, cope. to cope or to heal. So for me, it's not a matter of like, oh, that person's a drug addict or that person's an alcoholic and that's what makes them these people. We can make poorer decisions when we are under the influence of things, absolutely. But I feel generally, if you take somebody who doesn't have trauma in their history, giving them alcohol or, I mean, there's a, all sorts of different levels of drugs, but there's plenty of people who are alcoholics and drug users who are not abusive. Right. I believe that drug and alcohol abuse can make situations worse. So in turn, sure, I feel like that can maybe make women less safe. And I know for sure they can be used as an excuse. Absolutely, and that might be where they're the most dangerous, as being used as the excuse. Or it can, and one of the other things that can happen is when people are heavily using drugs or alcohol, they might not remember the situations at all, which makes it very easy for them to disregard the importance or the effect on the victim. And of course, especially for people in lower income levels, heavy dependence on drugs and alcohol just increases the financial strain mm -hmm. on the household. Yeah, absolutely. So that adds another pressure from another direction. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like drugs and alcohol is another pressure, just the same way poverty can be. Mm -hmm. In my heart, I still feel like there's that a trauma that, that led us to the next step, right? I know that when we were chatting earlier um, before this interview, you mentioned having visited Tofino mm. and you were impressed with some of the uh, resources that were available there that we don't have here at the moment for men. One of the things that I was inspired by, and I'm pretty sure it was the emergency health services that provided it, and it was a monthly free men's luncheon. And 
they had either a doctor or a nurse practitioner who would be present. And there was a confidential space that um, men could ask private questions if they wanted to without actually having to make a doctor's appointment. You know, like it could be it can be challenging to find the time and the energy to make a doctor's appointment just to ask a question that can seem silly. But to kind of casually be able to ask somebody, oh, yeah, put some cream on that or, yeah, no, you should probably get the doctor to look at that kind of a mm-hmm. energy, uh, just a much more relaxed and casual kind of check in with a medical professional. I thought that it was a really nice way to bring men together. And I really would love to see this happen on Cortez. Um, I've tried to connect with some men about different ways that we could kind of try and create this. Um, funding's always been an issue, but I feel like I feel like this isn't something that would have to take a lot of money to do, you know. And I feel like with enough community support, it really it should be pretty simple to put together. I think that it would be amazing to see to have a few key members of our community who are also attending these luncheons, um, elders, drug and alcohol counselors. Um, we've got, we have all sorts of men who are doing amazing work on this island and, and for there to be a place where conversation can potentially open up, connection can happen. There could potentially be some information, you know, pamphlets about maybe men's health or For example, I can imagine in a perfect world that as well as having a number that you can call if you're experiencing domestic violence, there's a number you can call with a sympathetic, helpful person at the end if you fear that you might commit domestic violence Mm -hmm. or you have and you know it's not a healthy relationship and you want to change, there's someone you can call who would help you with that. Mm -hmm. And where there would be, you know, posters that said, have you hit someone in your family? Call for help in the same way that we do with alcohol issues, in the same way that we do with drug abuse issues. And I think it's completely possible. I've seen within the indigenous communities, men's healing circles and those types of things happen. And I mean, I don't have the answer to men's health problems, (laughs) obviously. And it would be really great to see some men get together and figure out, like navigate that. It it would be touching to see something like that happen on Cortez. I think we need it. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I think it, again, in the same way that for us, for the women at the Women's Center who are connecting and providing a sense of resources to each other and brainstorming about what we can do to help our community in these ways, I think that these luncheons could become similar for the men in our community to do the same. If we understand that if we could connect on a deeper level, that it wouldn't be about having to come out after a domestic abuse situation has happened and having to confront them on it, right? Like, I think that's part of what feels challenging. It's like you either confront them in kind of this aggressive way or... Or you pretend it's not happening anymore. You know, there's not really... And and this is the tricky part. And this is as a community that we need to come together because there is no one right answer. And there's different levels of intervention that we need to figure out how to navigate. So in your experience, um, do you find that relationships that have been marred by violence can be repaired can can that relationship be healed can abusers change and can relationships be put back together and become healthy i in my heart believe that everyone has the ability to change i think that it's it's a really challenging question because i've never actually witnessed the situation where especially when we're talking about violent abuse where that has just stopped or moved on. Really, I've, I feel like I've seen men who have maybe come out onto the better side of their abusive behavior, but that has always taken them 
being on their own. It is taking removing the women from the situation and for them having to really often deal with some addiction issues, find some sort of help or counseling, spend time alone to process what it is that they needed to process. Especially once relationships have gotten to that sort of abusive level, I think it's a lot different if you can see the warning signs early and if it's something that can maybe be addressed more at that point. But I do believe that when we talk about that level of violence, that it really does take some hard counseling work. It takes some really deep inner looking at yourself. And when we look at the rehabilitation spaces and recovery places, often people are there for six weeks, two months, because they really need to sit with themselves, with support in a safe place and be able to start to explore and once they come out of recovery, that's just the first chapter of their recovery. There's still a lot more consciousness and work to put into. So it's not like you can go to a few counseling sessions and work that out. Mm -hmm. And there's also the part that whatever level of abuse that's happened in the relationships, there's a lot of healing that needs to take place for both parties. And that healing would have to take place before you could likely come back together in a healthy relationship, in my opinion, from what I've witnessed. I have heard of situations where there was one time that it, you know, the, the first time it happened, oftentimes alcohol may have been a, a part of it and the threat of, I'm out of here, me and the, you were gone, this is never going to happen again. Um, I have seen situations where there's been one situation that went too far and men have corrected their behavior. They have, you know, continued to never have another drop of alcohol in their life because their children and their partner's safety was more important than having those drinks with the buddies or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and making sure that they felt as safe as possible. I do, I have heard of a couple of stories with that type of a situation after like the line got crossed too far once and it was reacted to quickly. And I think in some of those situations as well, that it wasn't just the woman who was involved. There was probably some friends or brothers who got to sit down and be like, what do you think? You know? got to be supportive of the family and make sure that, that those things didn't happen. wondered if um, we could talk a little bit about, for people getting into relationships, any things to watch out for, like perhaps that maybe North Island has a list or, or sort of you have a list from experience of indicators that might cause you to exercise a little caution if you're getting into a new relationship, like early warning signs. It can be, I think one of the things that can be the most challenging with people who have abusive cycles, and especially people who are codependent and need that in their partner um, to regulate themselves, it can be really tricky because often it's like, well, how do you tell the difference between a really nice guy and an abuser? Because oftentimes, at the beginning, it's often really grandiose uh, expressions of affection that will start quite early, you know, often right away. Um, I've never felt this way about anybody before. You're the most wonderful person You're in the, the whole world. Yeah. yeah. We were made for each other. Yeah, I've never been in love like this before. No one's ever loved me like this before. Lots of things that feel like just over the top romantic and intense and get carried away very, very quickly. Those often can be warning signs. Would you say that rushing the pace is an indicator? Like feeling like someone's really pushing hard to accelerate yeah, this I would be weary moving in with a partner without there being a substantial amount of time mm -hmm. uh, between you. 
if, if you're concerned about abusive relationships. And it can be, too, that women will be drawn into an abuser's relationship. They've had past relationships with abusers. And so the, the next man who seems like he's perfect, there's going to be a really solid honeymoon period of, I would easily say, two to three months, if not longer. You know, six months can be pretty easy to go through where everything will seem pretty picture perfect. Mm-hmm. And little things, too, can you can... Behaviors... It can be about controlling, but it's hard to identify, right? It could be uh, clothing. They could be buying clothing or type of clothing that you're wearing. It could be... Uh, like scheduling your time. Yeah, yeah, kind of influencing the scheduling of your time, limiting your access to certain things. Um, always wanting to be present, not really wanting you to have time alone with friends. is certainly a big warning sign. Super trashing their exes. Abusers usually will make their exes out to be horrific. Like to have no sympathy with them, but paint them as totally negative. And certainly feel it necessary to paint them that way to the new partner. Mm-hmm. And some people's exes can be pretty horrific. Yep. But I know <laughs> that if I was approaching a relationship with someone, I would listen very carefully to how they talked about their exes and mm-hmm. about their family. Mm-hmm. The man who says that all of his ex-girlfriends are crazy, (laughs) do you want to be the next crazy ex-girlfriend? Because you will be. One of the questions that would occur to me is, uh, do you feel respected? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that definitely if the person you're with makes you feel disrespected or when you're talking to them, they kind of burst your bubble a little bit and you're trying to share, express something that you might be excited about, they might downplay your successes... Um, yeah, if, if you can sit back and take a look at how your partner responds to you and if they're supportive and respectful and tend to be excited for you or if they tend to kind of bring you down, you know, that's a really easy ask, I think. Well, but it's not, though, either, is it? Because in some ways people can bring you up and in other ways they bring you down. And so sometimes trying to compare which is more important for you can be challenging too. I think one for me was always how would you feel if your friends or a family member were overhearing this conversation that you're having with your partner? That's a really good one. That's a really good one. The other one is how would you feel if you were watching your best friend be treated the same way you're being treated? Do you value yourself as much as you would value your best friend? Yeah, trusting your instincts is always a big deal. If there's a little inkling of you that goes, oh, that was kind of funny. Like, oh, that's really cool that when I came home today, he put flowers all over my living room or surprised me by leaving a cake in my kitchen. But if there's some part of you that's like, oh, but he kind of came into my house without me knowing. And that's a little, you know, like if there's even, even if just a little inkling of something that makes you raise your eyebrows, just make a note of it. Don't disregard it. And if you start to notice that those things are happening a little bit, um, check in with your boundaries. And, and perhaps that conversation needs to be had about where your boundaries are. And if you find that those boundaries aren't respected, I would take that as a warning sign for mm-hmm. sure. Understanding where your boundaries are and being able to hold strong to those. I think especially if you've been in abusive relationships and you're, and you're looking to have a healthy relationship. 
but it's important to be clear with yourself where those boundaries are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you're strong with where your boundaries are, it becomes hard for someone to violate them. And if they do, you often have a stronger response to what you want to allow in your life or what you will tolerate. So what can listeners do if they want to support the Women's Center, if they want to um, address this issue on Cortez Island? Do you have some contact information, some ideas about what people can do to help? We certainly always use donations. We, the Campbell River North Island Transition Society, because we umbrella under them, we can use their, um, their charitable donation number. So people can receive tax receipts it has to be mentioned that it's for the Cortez Women's Center. And every penny that gets brought in to the Transition Society goes directly to us. They don't take a cut? No, they don't take a cut whatsoever. And that being said also is any of the money that we bring in there is all the money that we're receiving. So we don't get funding right now through grants, through um, the Transition Society. They don't have a certain percentage of money that they send us every year. They don't pay our rent. Like All the money that we have is money that we've raised or gotten through some of our grants and donations. And are you looking for volunteers as well? We're, we're always open for volunteers. Things are a little bit tricky at the moment no. as far as, COVID. you know, um, but, and certainly like as far as members, like people who want to get involved and just kind of have that conversation or that dialogue, uh, you don't have to be a member or a volunteer to come into the women's center and have these conversations either. Right. So one of the things though, that we certainly are keen about is getting more training for volunteers so that they can have a better foundation mm-hmm. and feel like they have it's clear what they can offer for the community within their skill set. And who can people contact if they would like to volunteer or if they would like to donate? You can email the Cortez Women's Center, which is cortezwomenscenter at gmail.com. And our phone number is 250-935-6501. So leave me a message in either one of those places, and I will certainly get back to you about that. If you would like to support the Cortez Island Women's Resource Center, you can also donate via Patreon online or via Canada Helps. For more details, please see the podcast version of this show at cortezradio.ca and cortezcurrents.ca. Hey, this is Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and you have been listening to Cortez Currents. This Saturday afternoon show is rebroadcast on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and is also available in podcast form at cortezradio.ca. Once again, the opinions and views heard on this show are those of the host and guests and are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio Society. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. Thanks for listening.